1: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from howstuffworks.com.
4: Hi and welcome to the podcast. I am Tracy V. Wilson and I'm Holly Fry. Hi Holly. And today we're talking about one of those cool elements of history. That I think if you had never been interested in history before and you heard this story, you would suddenly become a fan of all history. Like you would just want to dig through books for more of this kind of stuff. Yes. Well, and it's the thing I learned about studying literature. Yeah. So it's one of those things that intersects a lot of different pieces. Yeah. Um, We're going to talk today about a woman who lived in the Middle Ages. So the late 14th and early into the mid 15th Mm -hmm. century. Her name was Marjorie Kemp. Uh, and seems like a pretty ordinary woman. She was a a wife and a mother of 14 children, which was a pretty normal number of children uh, at that period. In spite of this apparently typical side of her, uh, she also had, uh, especially in the latter part of her life, some pretty intense spiritual visions. Yes. She's often cited as a mystic now. Yes. during the Middle Ages, men definitely ran the church. They were in charge. They were the people who were the priests and yeah. the clerics and the ones who made all of the decisions. Um, and then there were women that also had these very deeply spiritual lives and would talk about having visions and uh, and having really intense religious experiences. Most of them were were recluses also. Yeah. Um, they were called anchorites or anchoresses, uh, who lived either within the church or sometimes literally within a wall of the church. So they would have a tiny, tiny cell, tinier than the room that we record podcasts in. Yeah. That they would spend their entire lives in. And, and those were, uh, some of these women, um, had their own followers and sort of, there, there would be sort of like a cult of people that followed their teachings. Yeah. Um, Marjorie Kemp was a very spiritual person, but she traveled with her husband. Yeah, and she went, was not an anchorite. Not at all. She went on a uh, pilgrimage and traveled all over um, for a period of several years. So that kind of sets her apart from some of the other mystics who were happening uh, in the same era. Mm-hmm. At that point when she began traveling, she had kind of established that she was dedicated to her religion and to the visions that she was having and to yes. f- following um, religious doctrine. And so she eventually, and we will get to this in more depth, you know, had this ch- claim to chaste life, but she was traveling with a man who was her husband, which confused some people. Who had fathered 14 children. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they had a whole brood of kids together. Right. Uh, and so that got confusing. Right. Some of her children she did have after she started having visions, but before she and her husband stopped the sexual part of their relationship. So yeah. uh, some of the visions that she had were while she was pregnant and, and were of Jesus telling her, it's going to be okay, I will arrange for your child to be taken care of while you go on pilgrimage for me. And what's really interesting is that she's often credited as uh the creator of the first autobiography yes in um, english for sure yeah uh and she dictated it because she was not literate herself um so yeah it's the oldest known autobiography in ling- in english and it isn't written in chronological order uh and no. it it isn't a full account of her life no she leaves out big chunks and she really just focuses on her spiritual journey right uh, and she focused on it in sort of in the order that she remembered things. Right. So scholars have kind of gone back and pieced together a timeline based on her references to holidays and world events that we know when they happen. So when we talk about sort of the chronology of her life, that's been pieced together based on... Yeah, that is not her laying out in her autobiography like I was born here. I She's no. kind of all over the place. And she did dictate it sometime after most of the events she talks about. So it is yes. all, you know, it's subject to human recollection. Right, uh, but to start at the beginning, yes. So she was born around uh, 1373 uh, to her father, who was John Brunham. It may also have been Burnham. Yep, it's, we're not quite sure. It's we've seen it's, both ways. Yes, we've. It's written down in more than one spelling. And he was the mayor of King's Lynn, which was then called Bishop's Lynn, which is on. Uh, just in case anybody needs a quick geography checkpoint, it is on the side of England towards the Netherlands. Yes in a little inlet. Yes. Uh, it was a coastal town, so yeah. there was a lot of money to be made in, in the world of, of merchant work. Yeah. So things that had to do with buying and selling and shipping uh, was a lot of what was going on. Um, her father also served as one of the town's two representatives to Parliament six times, as well as a lot of other positions. He was a very notable and successful person and marjorie was very proud of that fact she was a very proud person yeah which is a theme that will come up in her life later yeah i mean she was a, a child of a, a wealthy pillar of the community yes um, not not a mystery why she would be proud of that no no uh she did get married Yes. In 1393. So at roughly 20, which is pretty late in life for most girls at that time, mm-hmm. uh, to John Kemp, who was also the son of a successful merchant. Yes. And he was a merchant, too. Not really as successful as his father, but they did well enough. Um Her first pregnancy was really hard. She was very sick for a lot of it. And then after the baby was born, she had a period of more than a year of... Uh, what she herself describes as madness, you know, we, things that we would recognize as being signs of being mentally ill today. So right. she talked about having hallucinations, um, being just very verbally abusive to her family, having to be restrained to keep from injuring herself. Um, a lot of people today sort of say that she she must have had some kind of postpartum psychosis going on during right. this period. Um, and then one day she had a vision while she was very sick and during this period, she had a vision of Jesus. Uh, and during this vision, Jesus asked her why she had forsaken him when he had never forsaken her. Uh, and she was sort of like, well, that's a good question. <laughs> and then started to recover huh. from this illness that she had had. Um, she, it, it was not a light switch, though. That no. was not the thing that led her to then become a, a very devoted religious person. Uh, she continued to sort of live life as she had been before. She described herself as pretty proud and stubborn. Um, she went into some of the more mundane jobs that women had in in the Middle Ages. She worked for a brewer as a while, for a while and as a miller, um, and both of those businesses failed. She um, maybe wasn't great at those things. Yeah, well, she was real, She made good beer, uh, but she couldn't like. Repeatedly make enough good beer to sell it, like she right, would, to she'd sustain a, yeah, a business. She'd make a good batch, and then the next one would be terrible. And uh, the the mill had problems with the horse; like one of the team of horses just refused to to turn the mill, and it. Uh, so both of those businesses failed, and that started to become a more humbling experience. Um, it still, though, was a period of years before uh, before she started on a just very deeply religious path. Right. Um, she started to become more and more preoccupied with what heaven was like and how, uh, in her mind, heaven was this amazing place and the earth was pretty terrible. Mm-hmm. So l- let's figure out how to get to heaven faster. Right. Um, she started spending more and more time in church. Um, she gave up meat and alcohol and eventually sex as penance for previous sins. Uh, and she also did a thing that was kind of a common practice during the Middle Ages, which was the mortification of the flesh. And she did this by wearing a hair shirt. Right. Um, and if you don't know what a hair shirt is, it's a very coarse or prickly shirt that you wear under your clothing so that it physically irritates your skin. All day long. Constantly. Yeah. Um, and she actually the, she started wearing that before she stopped having sex with her husband because she wore it while she was pregnant at one point. Oh my goodness. Which sounds like torture. It does sound horrible. I mean, I've never had a child, but knowing from the descriptions of other people what being pregnant is like. Yeah, that can be very uncomfortable and it's exhausting already. And sometimes you already feel like prickly and rashy anyway. So to add a hair shirt on top of that. No. Sounds horrible. Yes. Uh, So... And then she had a couple of years that were kind of the easy part of her. Right. Where she was fasting. She was, you know, acts of contrition. They weren't terribly difficult. But then she had three years of temptations. Yes. Including when a man tried to seduce her away from her husband. Um so she had had these years where it was sort of like she was trying very hard to be a, a very, quote, good religious person. And that was going really well. It yeah. was easy for her to fast. It was easy for her to do these things. Then all these temptations started, uh, including a man who tried to seduce her. And when she agreed to seduce him or to, to be seduced by him, uh, he spurned her. Um so she did not actually go through with it, but the fact that in her brain she had given in, she thought was she had just, mentally sinned. She had mentally sinned, and she felt that that was just as bad. Right. Um, and so it was after that that she really recommitted herself to staying on the path that she felt like was going to lead her into heaven and to being a better person and to getting rid of the sins of her past. Um, once she got to about the age of 40... She started having some just really intense, dramatic visions that felt, she described them as real. Right. Like real events that were happening that she was participating in. Yeah. Um, So she had visions where she uh, would hear God or Jesus speaking to her. Right. But then she also had these visions that were like she was physically present at events that were described in the Bible. Right. Um, So she had one where she was present at the birth of Jesus. The Virgin Mary and and took care of the Virgin Mary as, as a child. child, um, and then the birth of Jesus. So and the crucifixion, like very notable events. Yeah, um, she sort of had visions that were physically real to her in which she participated in all of these events. And it's interesting to me just that uh, a lot of those are in a maternal. Yeah, it's taking care of these religious figures and being part of, you know, their birth and that young developmental part of their life cycle. When we'll talk about it a little bit more later, but in most of her writing, she never mentions her kids. The 14 children she actually had are pretty tertiary in the whole narrative. We only really hear about one of them. And that is one who she describes as being physically or spiritually troubled. And she felt that her intervention had helped to save him. And that's really sort of the one story. Yeah, of one of her children that we hear about. Um, so yeah, she she talks a lot about having visions of of women who are present in, in the Bible and uh, having relationships with them, and then she has other visions that are more like conversations um, with Jesus or with God. So, for example, she had a, a vision of a conversation with Jesus in which he told her to stop wearing that hair shirt because he was going to give her sort of a spiritual hair shirt. For her, cha- her heart yeah. rather than physically wearing a hair shirt. Uh, he also commanded her to continue to not eat meat and to only wear white which was the color of consecrated virgins. Mm-hmm. Um, that was actually a huge deal at the time. The fact that she was going around all in white but she was not actually a virgin yeah. got lots of hatred and derision from yeah. other people. Um, and then in the same series of conversations uh, she felt Commanded uh, by God to go on pilgrimage to Rome, Jerusalem, and Santiago, and so after a few years she did that. It took a while to actually get started. Uh, they, you know they had various affairs to settle and, and other stuff that they had to prepare for. Uh, but about uh, two years after feeling commanded uh, by God to go on pilgrimage. She started her pilgrimage and that was in 1413. Yeah. And she, in the midst of all of this, she was praying pretty constantly to end her sexual relationship with her husband because she felt that she was displeasing God with their inordinate love. Yeah, They had a very active physical life together. Clearly because they had 14 kids. Right. Um, but yeah, the way she describes it, theirs was not a relationship of of quote having sex just for procreation. Like they had a very physical relationship; they were very attracted to each other. Right. Um, it was a very passionate. It's a very passionate thing, and you know, this whole thing happens from her point of view. But she describes her husband as a willing participant in the end of their sexual relationship. Right. Eventually, at yes. first, it, it takes it's some years of prayer yeah uh some years as what of what she sort of describes as kind of a divine intervention like he would he would want to have sex and then he would be stricken with terror uh, and then they would not. And uh, she had been praying for about three years when they had an argument one day while they were traveling by the side of the road um, and, and an argument in which he was like so if, if somebody came and said like with a sword, somebody came with a sword and said, you need to have sex right now or I'm going to murder you, could we have sex? And she was like, no, <laughs> I would rather you die. <laughs> and he was like, OK, seriously, if if, if it's going to be time for this, ye, I, what I want you to do is to start uh, stop your fast that you're doing on Fridays and have have a meal with me on Friday yeah, uh, and pay off all of my debts. Yeah, um, it was a, a bit of a negotiation. It was a totally a negotiation. And she she was kind of reluctant to do this at first because she had been praying really hard to stop their relationship, but she had also felt commanded by God to fast every Friday. Right. So she prayed about that. The word she got back was, okay, if, if this is cool, you can stop having your fast on Friday mm-hmm. and and stop your relationship with your husband and, and that will all work out. It'll even out. It will even out. And so on June 23rd, 1413, she and her husband stopped being married and they can or they stopped having sex, but they continued to be married until he died. Yeah, which is interesting. I mean, that is at that point 20 years into the marriage. Mm -hmm. So I think when when you're retelling it or even hearing it or reading it in a history book. There is that weird, you know, wow, that would really stink to marry someone and have them say they didn't want to be intimate with you. And it seems like it's much closer to the beginning, but in, they had been married for quite a while at that point. They had. Um, and, I, I, you know, we can't ever fully know everything that went down there and like what words were truly, I mean, she recounted, you know, from memory, but I, I do just wonder at what that conversation must have really been like. Right. And, you know, if there was some degree to which he wanted to give in just to make her happy, because they seemed like they had genuine affinity for one another. Yeah. They seemed to have a very close relationship that, that was based on love and trust and support. Um, I had actually, because I I had read her autobiography many years ago, and I had kind of forgotten that part of it. And in my head, he had become this kind of, like, reluctant participant in his wife's (laughs) craziness. Um, And that was sort of, that was just me uh, superimposing, because that is not how it reads at all. Uh, And she talks about them having a very fond relationship. Yeah. Yeah. they did have things that they disagreed about and things that they had to come to some kind of consensus over like stopping their sexual relationship uh but that he did he also he also wanted to be a more spiritual person and he also wanted to live a good life so it wasn't just her kind of dragging him along right with her uh down this path of of pilgrimage and abstinence
5: yeah.
4: um, and this was uh again kind of early on in the pilgrimage phase mm-hmm. Uh yes that was in 1413 and that winter they stayed in Ven- in Venice as sort of a stopping point before going to the holy land. Mm-hmm. Uh I think it's interesting that a little before that at the very beginning she um visited holy sites closer to home. Oh right you skipped over that part Norwich and Canterbury um and she met with a lot of other religious figures. Yes. Of the day. Uh, Both official and unofficial religious figures. She Before they left England, she met the Bishop of Lincoln and the Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, And then she also met Julian of Norwich. And that's uh, one of the anchoresses that we talked about earlier who lived walled up in the wall of a church. And I had read one account that suggested that she kind of asked Julian to verify her visions a little bit mm-hmm. uh, we're, I mean so she has I think we think of anybody that is claiming to have all these visions it's very easy to go crazy hey, you're crazy but she recognized that that was a possibility and so she turned to some another religious figure that she really you know believed and trusted and trusted to say, am I insane? Is this crazy? I really think this is happening. And Julian was like, no, I'm pretty sure you're having the visions. Yes. They're valid. She had similar conversations with priests sometimes. And, and there were there were priests and other religious figures who, um, she cried a lot. She was sort of visited by religious weeping. Uh, and she would just have this sort of uncontrollable crying during religious uh, events either while she was having visions or while she was praying, and uh, there were priests who thought that she was doing this just to get attention. Right, um, and they would do things like say, "Okay, you need to come, come to my cloister." And, and do your prayer there with nobody watching you. And then they would just kind of secretly watch from around the corner and find that she was still weeping. Right. <laughs> and then they would find that as evidence that she was being genuine in what she was describing and not making it up. It was the hair shirt in her heart. It was and the it hair was shirt. probably making her cry. Yes. So lots of travels around England uh, to religious sites there in 1413. Uh, a stop in Venice. And then that spring they sailed from Venice to Jerusalem. And she spent about a year visiting holy sites in Jerusalem before returning home again via Rome. Uh, and while in Rome, one of the most sort of notable and interesting events of her religious life happened. Yeah. Uh, which is that she got married to God. Yeah. Um, in a vision, uh, she got married to God and the the Holy Ghost, the Virgin Mary, all of the apostles and lots of saints were all witnesses. To this. Um, she actually, already before this, had had sort of a mystical marriage to Jesus and had a wedding ring that was her wedding ring to Jesus that she would wear. Uh, and so this became sort of this multi dimensional, like a marriage to multiple aspects of the Godhead. Yes, while simultaneously still married to an actual human. Right. Even though their relationship was non sexual and kind of more one of friendship at that point. Yes. So, yes, she she at that point considered herself to be married, uh, married to God Um, before they returned back to England. She went to Assisi and visited holy sites in Assisi Uh, and they departed from Rome in at Easter time of 1415 and they got back to Norwich in May.
6: Listen to a brand new season of math and magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe.
0: Mexico will likely have its first female president.
2: And then you have China.
0: And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters.
2: He get his yo-yos to Europe in time. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television.
2: to getting what you want is always the hardest it's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get people quit
5: listen to on purpose with jay shetty on the iHeartRadio radio app apple podcast or wherever you get your podcasts
4: um she had one more sort of leg of her pilgrimage after that and that was from july ish uh, around July seventh of fourteen seventeen, she took a seven-day voyage over sea um, to Santiago de Compostela in Spain, uh, and that is where the tomb of Saint Peter is. Yeah, uh, and that's also a, a pilgrimage that people continue to make over land today. Yes, like that's a, a thing that people continue to do. Um, and that was another you know meeting other religious figures there, having spiritual experiences there, and uh, they returned. From Santiago in August of 1417, and that was sort of the period of her religious wandering. Right. Those were her, uh, her travels. Uh, Yeah, it was her travels of devotion. Yes. It was not at all the end of her, uh, the spiritual side of her life or the difficulties she experienced though, because once she got back home to England, she started to be put on trial for heresy. Yeah. I mean, she was as we mentioned earlier, she was wearing white, which was reserved for consecrated virgins. She was claiming that she had this marriage yes, to God and Jesus. She, you know, there were just a lot of things that conflicted with society's norms. Even very religious elements of society were like you're doing this not the right way. Right. This isn't this isn't how you worship. She was threatening to sort of the religious orthodoxy in a lot of ways. Yeah, she was definitely outside the normal realm of what you did if you had dedicated your life to your devotion. Yes. Um, So, you know, people can perceive that a lot of times as heretical, as very threatening, Mm -hmm. and that was definitely the case with Marjorie. Yes. So she was put on trial more than one time in more than one city. Uh, She spent some time in prison, either in the actual jail or in the home of one of the jailers um, so she was imprisoned at various times um she was not ever found guilty, which is uh I think good because she would have been burned at the stake and yeah and it I mean it does sort of give her a little bit of um historical credibility yeah. to say like no people actually believe this was just part of her dedication you know she proved to them that that's what the what it was she wasn't just trying to be rebellious or, you know, she wasn't trying to fly in the face of convention. Right. These were her beliefs. And she really felt strongly that she was getting these directives from God. Mm-hmm. She was able to make a case for that. Basically, yeah. Uh, and, and, and not in the end be ruled to be someone who was making it up or was right. uh, doing something that was going to be contradictory to what the church was teaching. So she was back home in Lynn again by fourteen eighteen. Uh, And she stayed there for years. She had spent five years traveling. And then she just sort of, she continued to live her life in Lynn, continued to have visual and and physical vision experiences. She continued to try to teach people and try to talk to people. Um, She did not get along with one of the nearby friars who objected to the way that she was weeping uh, all the time. And so that caused a fair amount of tension Really, a lot of the hardest criticism that she got, she got at home. She right. got less of it when she was traveling and more of it uh, at home. And she continued to live in Lynn and her, until, well, even after. But her husband passed away in 1431. Um, and it was after that that she took the last journey that she went on. Yeah. Uh, and her son also died that yes. year. the only The only child of hers that we... Did we really hear, really hear anything in about her uh, in her tales? We have no idea about the other 13. No, no. And her husband, she said, you know, had been ill. He had been senile and she had been taking care of him for quite some time at that point. But yeah, so she had one more journey to make. Yes. Uh, and she was about 60 at this time. So it was 1433, 1434. And she was traveling to Prussia uh, by ship to escort her widow daughter-in-law home. Yes, And then they also toured religious sites, on land, on the return journey. Yes. Uh, but she was 60, and it was a little bit rougher at yeah. that point. She didn't quite have the zeal of youth that she had on her previous pilgrimage yes. activities. She's not quite, not quite as spry no. as she used to be. 60 is quite old at that time. At that point, yeah. Especially to have, uh, you know, it's the physical toil of, of 14 children is a lot. Uh, and there were a lot of women in that age who in their later pregnancies, things got harder and harder. Yeah. Uh, and, and often it, didn't survive childbirth. Right. So we don't know when she died, but it was some point after the age of 60. Yeah. Um, there are a few, I mean, this is so long ago now that it, it's really hard to pinpoint dates. Yeah, there endless... aren't a lot of records to refer to. No. So there are records of someone with names similar to hers, uh, doing various things around the town. And it's one of those where, okay, maybe they're talking about Marjorie, but we're not really sure. So, so that's basically her life. Um, but she's one of those people who her life is goes there there's more to it than just the dates of what all the things happened. yeah um, she's a very important figure in the landscape of religion yeah we we've talked a lot about sort of the themes of her life already there was just there was a lot of prayer and a lot of confession and a lot of teaching uh, of gospel to other people yeah and she was also really beloved and reviled depending on who you talked to. <laughs> Uh, There were religious leaders who would ask for her to come visit them so that they could meet her and talk to her. Yeah, and then there were other people who would try to prosecute her for heresy. Yeah, I mean she was sort of just having to prove the validity of her faith and devotion all the time, constantly. Yes. Um. So yeah, she she depending on who you spoke to was either just an amazing religious figure or or a heretic. Um, when you look at her autobiography and we'll talk about the autobiography a little bit more in just a minute, but when you look at it, she traveled a lot. That was a lot of travel for a medieval person to do. Oh yes. she did a lot of travel going and she went a long way. She talks about that almost none. Um, <laughs> she, she says barely anything about her children. she says barely anything about the the travel aspects of her travel. Uh, pretty much all of her autobiography is focused on the things that seemed spiritually important. Right, um, And the rest of it is just not even really acknowledged. Yeah. It's all, like I said earlier, secondary and tertiary at best. It's just right. If it fills in some portion of the recounting of the spiritual journey, then it gets included. And otherwise it doesn't make the cut. Right. <laughs> it gets edited right out. Right. Um, uh, there are many similarities though between her and some other mystics. Yes. To put her put it in context, she was sort of happening, her life was happening within the greater picture of this whole tradition of medieval mysticism. Um, and one of the mystics that she had the most in common with is St. Bridget of Sweden. And St. Bridget of Sweden is somebody who she knew about. She had had Uh, St. Bridget's book read to her. She talked about having... Multiple times, Multiple times. Yes, she had had... She talked a lot about sermons that she heard read and hearing people read books to her because she was not literate herself, but she uh, had heard a lot and had described to her a lot about St. Bridget's life. Um, They were both married to men before they took on a spiritual wedding vow to the Godhead. Mm -hmm. Um, They both lived chastely for some part of their married life. They both... Wore hair shirts as an act of penance, uh, fasted, went on pilgrimages. Um, the the biggest difference, is, and in addition to being a little bit earlier in the the period, Saint Bridget was Saint Bridget was a lot more well off mm. than Marjorie. So Marjorie would have been like solidly middle class, right? Uh, and Saint Bridget was m- more like the nobility, right? Uh, but otherwise, they had a lot in common, and she had a lot in common uh, with a lot of the other. Uh, women mystics of that time. Um, so she wasn't just, she wasn't the only person. No, she was definitely not like a lone, uh, a lone mystic by any means. I mean, her tale bears a lot of resemblance not just to Bridget but to other mystics of the time. Mm-hmm. There were many women, and the women are always considered mystics because they had this sort of different relationship with God in the eyes of the culture of the time. right? You know, the male heads of church were certainly religious and devoted, but there was an administrative element to it. It was, you know, as Tracy mentioned earlier, it was about, you know, the, the power of their positions and, and that was all a big factor. Whereas the women, it really was almost a more visceral. They were very connected. Like they had physical visions where their body would be affected in different ways by their, um, their moments that they shared in these visions uh, with God. So it's a little bit, it's a, a different thing. And it's a reason that there were many women experiencing these same things, right. like that they were kind of lumped in this group of women mystics. Yes. That's why. There were several. Yes, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Some of them we may talk about at some very future, because right? I would not want to cluster a bunch of, women mystics together uh, no. in the podcast. But, the, but that's why them, the phrase women mystics happens. Yes. That they are kind of portioned off as right. having a different relationship with God than the men that were leaders in the church. Yes. So today because, uh, because you know, we live in a world that likes to find explanations for things that don't necessarily have explanations, Um there are a lot of theories today about uh, various illnesses that she may have had that may explain the visions that she had. Yeah. And so if you, if you go digging through, uh, through journals, you will find people who argue that she had epilepsy or postpartum psychosis or hysteria or schizoaffective disorder or bipolar disorder or Jerusalem syndrome. It's sort of a long laundry list yes. of uh, psychological explanations for the things that she wrote about in her life. Uh, I I sort of feel like regardless of what your own religious leaning is mm-hmm. or uh, whether you are a member of any particular faith, the fact that she, as a medieval woman, was able to take charge of her life to the extent that she was and travel as much as she was and become as notable as she did, that is remarkable. Yeah. Like even apart from any feeling that you may have about uh, church or religion or any of that. It's yeah, a just incredible life. Like I said at the top of the podcast, as a historical figure, her story is so engaging. Yeah. Uh, and when you juxtapose it against sort of, you know, what we know about society that, at that time and how society even works now, it's, she's incredible. Right. I mean, she's really so uh, noteworthy in so many different ways. Right. Well, and the other incredible thing is her autobiography. Yeah. Um, we've talked about how it's the oldest known autobiography in English. Um, she dictated it as two different books, uh, the first time around in 1436 and then the second time in 1438. Um, so about 20 years after the first time she had a vision is when she, uh, got with somebody to write all this down. Right. Um, there's kind of a long and wandering story of how the writing down happened. And much like a lot of what's in her life, there's sort of a, a vein of, And and then something lucky happened Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, that made it actually become a real thing. Um, It's possible that the first person to write the book down was her son, who we talked about, like the one child that we talked about. This is sort of circumstantial evidence linking her description of the person who wrote the book down to what her son's life was like. Yeah, They had both gone to Germany and gotten married and come back with a wife and then later died. Um, That's not super strong evidence. Uh, But there are people who think the first person she told the book to was her son. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I don't know about that, but that's, that's a theory. It is circumstantial at the same time. Like we mentioned before, there wasn't that much travel on that scope happening necessarily at that time. So it is, it's circumstantial, but it's also not insignificant. Right. That there are those matchups. Yes. So, Uh, Also, whoever it was who did the first writing down did not do a good job (laughs) Um, and did did not write very legibly and did not use uh, grammar that was either correct English for the time, um, because it is kind of a a middle English. If you you read a non-updated version, Mm -hmm. it's very tricky to read as a modern reader, Uh, but it was not even consistent within that spelling. It was like not consistent English or consistent German spelling. Uh, and grammar really did not do a good job. And so she, she was not dictating to a scholar. No, no. It was, was she, whoever, whoever she was talking to had more literacy than she did, but not enough to do a really great job. So she gave it to a priest who she trusted later on. And the priest was like, I can't read this. I can't (laughs) make head nor tails of this. Yeah. He gave it back to her. Uh, He felt bad about that later, changed his mind um, had trouble reading it because of, of failing vision. Uh, and she was like, I really have faith that God will help you do this. And in the end he did do the rewrite of it with her. Um, and they kind of revised as they went, Yeah, they revised as they went. They added some more stuff in. Um, and that leads people to, to sort of ask who should we think of as the writer of this? Was it Marjorie? Was it the first person who wrote it down? Was it the priest who rewrote it? Um, One thing that I think puts a lot of the, uh, answer of that into Marjorie, uh, is that she talks about that the priest read her, what he had written down with her in the room and she okayed it. So even though she was not physically the one holding the writing utensil, she did sort of, she approved what had been written down after it was written down. Right, She was like the verbal editor at that point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There are um there's also a lot of scholarly work that compares various pieces of the book, like in terms of the, the spelling and the style and the tone um, uh, to try to figure out who wrote what and what had been influenced by who. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, she, you know, likely did not um, need help making her narration sound like other books written at the time that were devotional in nature. Right. Because she had been hearing those from the time she was quite young. Right. Over and over. I mean, we talked about St. Bridget's story that she had read to her many, many times Mm -hmm. uh, and several others. So she already kind of had a sense of that style of narration. Right. Well, and because she did not have the luxury of being able to write things down. She probably also had a very good memory. Yeah. So uh, even though she was narrating something from memory, her memory was probably a little sharper than a lot of ours now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of you know people who have the luxury of making the list of things to take to the store uh, <laughs> because they know how to read and write. Um, she did not know how to read and write, so she had to keep all of the things that she needed to know in her head. But it is believed that the priest probably helped her with things like phrasing for clarity and, right. uh, just making sure that the story was told in a, a way that made sense. Right. And particularly the parts that are about when she was on trial. Yeah. Uh, she probably had some help not, n- not running the risk of further accusations of heresy right. by making sure that her answers in the book were correct. Like that probably is something she got a little extra help with. Yeah. Uh, But otherwise, people seem pretty confident that it's her her story told from her point of view. It is told in the third person. That's more of a a narrative technique, though, than than cause for question. Um, Here's the interesting thing. Is it the thing that I'm going to say? I think so. Uh, Is it that the text of the autobiography was not discovered until 1934? Yeah. Uh, That amazes me. I know. So, 1934, let's just, let's back up a step. Uh, people knew that this book existed, um, because there was a guy named Winkin' DeWord, which I just want to say all the time. <laughs> uh, Winkin' DeWord had published excerpts from it in an eight page pamphlet in 1501. Yeah. Um, so it th- had been referenced in other works that right. we already had and knew about. Yeah. So people knew that, that, that this was a book that existed. They thought that it was a book about an anchorite. Like, they thought it was going to be a book about somebody who was a recluse. Yeah. Uh, so, in 1934, um, sitting on a shelf in a library at uh, Pleasanton Old Hall, Lancashire, uh, it was on a you know, private library shelf, basically, and people would just pick it up and look at it yeah. and read it. Uh, like, it was this ancient manuscript. <laughs> it was not being really super well cared for in that respect. Um, but it was owned by the L- L- Lieutenant Colonel William E.I. Butler Bowden. Uh, and one day he thought, maybe I should get this thing looked at. So he took his extremely old manuscript that had just been sitting on a library shelf to a medieval scholar at the Victoria and Albert Museum, which at the time was called the Museum of South Kensington. Uh, and he showed it to an American medieval scholar there named Miss Hope Emily Allen. And Miss Hope Emily Allen was uh, familiar with Winkin' De Words' <laughs> pamphlet. <laughs> And she's the one who identified it and as Marjorie she, yes, Kemp's story. she said this is Marjorie Kemp's book. Um, they were all kind of surprised that this was a married woman who had traveled around. That that was not what they expected to happen. Um, the surviving test, the one and only copy that we have of this medieval work. Yeah. Um, it was written in one person's handwriting uh, and probably in about 1450. So, so it was so, not the first one. No, it's not the original, but it's a pretty early copy. Um The first print edition of this newly rediscovered thing came out in 1940. Uh, And now, because this is a hundreds of year old manuscript that's been around for a really long time, if you want to read it, you can on the internet for free. (laughs) That is how far we've come as a society. Yeah, You can read uh, medieval woman mystics' entire work on the internet for free. Yeah. Yeah. We've come a long way. We've come a really long way really fascinating story to it me it is I love her story because it is so just mind-blowing she was you know so outside the realm of of what was ever expected I mean as you said even scholars that discovered the book it was like, like what they thought what <laughs> happened in her life and then she her husband went with her <laughs> And he said it was okay that they weren't going to have sex. Wow. That's a fascinating tale. It is. It's outside the realm of regularity for her time, for sure. Yeah, outside the realm of regularity for a lot of stuff. And she's, you know, <laughs> regardless of whether you feel that her visions were real or were psychosis, she was a remarkable woman. Yeah, there. Uh, you can, you know, Google her and see all manner of artwork depicting her. mm mm-hmm. uh, which is just, it's one of those things where I will think about her story and I'll look at some of those and it's like my brain tries to put them together and I just wish I could know what was really going on in her head sometimes. Yes. Uh, if you, if you want to read her book, uh, you have two choices. Uh, I mean, there, there are lots of editions of it, but two primary choices. And one is the one with modernized language, which mm-hmm. is a very easy and fast read uh, because it is very simple language. Um, if you're reading the one that is more in uh, more of a Middle English style, that can take a while a if you're not arduous. used to it. Yeah, if you're not used to it, it can take a while uh, to to get used to the way things are spelled and all of that. But either way, you can get a hugely interesting glimpse into a, a medieval woman's just
5: yeah traveling and
4: it's, life. It's also significant because uh, we mentioned that it's the first. English autobiography, but for many scholars, it's one of the really best surviving texts on just sort of what life was like in medieval England. Right. Uh, so it's significant, not just from her religious story and her societal sort of uh, fascinating trajectory, but also just in terms of a historical document about what it was like to live in a port city in England at the time. Yeah, in a middle-class family.
1: Yeah.
4: Uh, So many reasons that it's worth taking a look at. So that's Marjorie Kemp. Yes.
1: Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
6: Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing,
2: It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, You know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get.
5: People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: And then we have some listener mail. Yes. We have two pieces. We do. Because I am a new addition to this podcast, I'm reading... I'm reading mail that's addressed to other people. Yeah. And uh, it's, it feels kind of decadent to be reading <laughs> other people's mail. Like you're eavesdropping on other people's email. Right. So this one is from Nancy and it's addressed, Dear Katie, Sarah, Deblina, if you're reading this, Holly, did I miss anyone? <laughs> Tracy, me. Uh, or and also Jane and Candace and many of the yeah. past from years and years ago, history hosts. Um, I, I do not mean to make you feel bad. If I did, I I am sorry. Um, she says she's been thinking about sending an email since last September. Uh, And she listens while walking the dog. Um, She says, says, this is very old news, but uh, writing to you came to to mind again last month when Dublina and Sarah did a podcast on historical hoaxes. And you referenced a podcast you did last September on War of the Worlds. I first heard about this radio program when I was a young child. My mother, who will be 87 in a few weeks, told me about it. You see, she has very vivid memories of listening to the program when she was 12 years old. She lived lived just outside Philadelphia, only 70 miles from Grover's Mill, New Jersey. She remembers that the program aired on a Sunday night. Why does she know this? Because in her time, it was customary in many churches for folks to attend services on both Sunday morning and Sunday evening. My mom's parents had just returned to church that evening and left my mom home with her two older sisters. Being just kids and alone in the home for the evening, when they heard the program, they were petrified. (laughs) Every time I think about that radio program, I get shivers, imagining what it must have been like to be my mom, hearing about Martians invading the earth not very far from where she was. Yes, it all seems so silly now, but we forget how much things have changed in the past 70 years. I don't recall how my mom and her sisters finally learned that it was a hoax, One thing that also stood out in my mind as I listened to the podcast, toward the end you discussed whether or not you think you would be fooled and what you might have done. Deblina said she might phone someone. I'm wondering, but not so much that I will take the time now to find the answer. How many homes actually had telephones in 1930? And if they did, were the phones party lines? My point being that it may not have been that easy to just phone someone and talk it over. I love that story. Yeah, I giggled a little, not because I think it's funny that they were scared, but because I can so easily project myself to my youth when I would get similarly scared by silly things. Yeah, I would get scared by thinking, what if there's a monster? <laughs> like, if you told me that there was a monster, I would have lost my mind. hard right. of being a kid. And then we also got a postcard that uh, was sort of near and dear to my heart, for a reason I will tell you in a bit. And it is from listener Allie, uh, and it is a picture of a crooked beast. Crooked Beak Hamatsa Mask. Uh, And she is writing us from the Burke Museum of Natural History and Culture in Seattle. And this is near and dear to my heart because when I was in elementary school, I lived in Puyallup, which is near Seattle. And going to that museum is uh, fond memories for me. So I loved it. She is a... um, um an assistant in the ethnology collection, and she is currently working on a project of uh, arranging 3,000 35-millimeter slides from someone's travels in the Pacific from the 70s, which sounds kind of fascinating and interesting. So thank you for that, Allie, because it was a nice little reminder of being a kid in the Pacific Northwest. That's awesome. Yeah. So... Thank you very much for sending us postcards and emails. If you would like to talk to us, you can at facebook.com slash stuff. We're also on Twitter at history, and you can email us at com. If you would like to learn a little more about the more mundane side of Marjorie Kemp's life, you can go to our website, put the word beer in the search bar, and you will find how beer works, a testament to her brief and failed time as a brewer. You can do all of that and more at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com.
1: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.